1: We will halve inflation, grow the economy, reduce debt. Nothing's changed. The circus moves on. Rinse and repeat. We have an opportunity
2: to become Europe's Silicon Valley.
3: We can perhaps be a broker of some sort with
2: Ukraine. We expect inflation to come off quite rapidly in the rest of this year. Obviously, we want to see that happen. What we now need is a period of stable, quiet, serious government. You're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Ewan Potts.
4: And I'm Caroline Hepke.
2: Former Prime Minister Boris Johnson has been found to have deliberately misled Parliament over Partygate. We're going to bring you all the details with Bloomberg's UK government reporter, Emily Ashton.
4: But before that, now this is a story that I don't think will have had much attention outside of Bloomberg, but it's one that I think you really should know about. Britain's trade strategy needs reinventing. That's the view of Swati Dingra. Who's that? She's a member of the Bank of England's MPC. This is the rate-setting committee, right? She's co-authored a report with the chief economist at the Resolution Foundation, Sophie Hale. And what she says is really quite extraordinary.
2: Yeah, they reckon that the UK should aim to replicate what we have in Northern Ireland, which is being part of the EU customs territory and single market for goods. They reckon that Britain needs to fundamentally revisit its trade arrangements with the European Union, I can see eyes rolling. Uh,
4: uh, yes, I, I think it's extraordinary because the reality of the damage of Brexit, we know from the data. But, um, and also this report sort of ignores, you know, the EU position. It uh, also um, completely steps aside from the fact that neither of the major political parties are interested in this kind of renegotiation or reopening of the, of the Brexit agreement. But that aside... I think it is a gauge of where the policy conversation is in the UK about how difficult Brexit has been to Britain and the fact that we really need to think more about the relationship you know, between the UK and the EU. Yeah,
2: I mean, Swati Dinger is just one voice, but she yes. is an important voice who's got a seat at the top table or one of the top tables of you know, policymaking within the UK. Uh, and they reckon, they estimate that GDP could be boosted by as much as 2% which is uh, not to be sniffed at i think the interesting question well, huge is
4: huge in economic terms 2% is yes, massive it's
2: billions yeah absolutely and i think the interesting thing there is that, is is what would the eu's response be we spoke to michel barnier on the uh, podcast uh, just a couple of weeks ago and he said the door will always be open to uh, the uk rejoining the eu mm. but that is not what they're suggesting they're talking about undoing the Pandora's box of this trade negotiation. And whether there's any appetite for that in Brussels, I think is another question. No,
4: no. And look, I think it's, you know, it's discussion points at at the moment. But the other factor that I think is more immediate is that there is also this policy discussion around the UK's inflation problem. It's proving so persistent in Britain. Yes, it's come down from over 10% in March to 8.7% in April. But the, the question is... You know, how much of that is to do with Brexit, the stickiness of inflation here in the UK, that's the other kind of policy debate that's going on.
2: Yeah, and the report from the LSE uh, just a few weeks ago said that a big chunk, uh, a big proportion of our food price inflation over the last few years has been Brexit related. Yes. It has been to do with these uh, the trade friction that we have uh, created as a result of leaving the single market.
4: Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so uh, that's a story of interest to me. But of course, the House of Commons Privileges Committee now has come to its conclusion, saying that Boris Johnson uh, committed repeated contempts of Parliament. Its report says that the former Prime Minister was deliberately disingenuous when he tried to reinterpret his statements to the House.
2: Yeah, the committee recommended, or would have recommended if Johnson was still an MP, a 90-day suspension. That is much longer than had been expected. Boris Johnson says that the report is a charade that has twisted the truth. And plenty more strong words from Boris Johnson. He has been really uh, damning about this, uh, as perhaps you might expect. Well, Emily Ashton from our UK government team has been looking through the details of all of this. Emily, um, some some really, really strong words uh, from the committee.
3: Yeah, um, it's pretty bad, this report. Um, and as always, you know, all roads lead back to Boris Johnson, don't they? So here we are again discussing Boris Johnson. But yeah, this, this report says that Boris Johnson has deliberately misled Parliament over party gate, and he would have been suspended for 90 days if he hadn't quit as an MP earlier this week. And um, they also say he shouldn't be handed a House of Commons pass, as former MPs usually get. Um, and you know, Briefly summing up, they say he deliberately misled the House, he deliberately misled the committee, he impugned the committee and he was complicit in the campaign of abuse and attempted intimidation of the committee.
4: Okay, so that's what the committee says, I mean, which is a pretty damning conclusion, isn't it? What exactly were they looking at, Emily? Well,
3: they were analysing these gatherings in Downing Street. You know, this is what it all says. Um, they were analysing these gatherings in Downing Street and this is what it all boils down to, events in Downing Street during the pandemic at a time when restrictions were in place for the rest of, uh, of England and the UK. Now they were looking at six gatherings in particular in number 10 and the report found that Johnson had genuinely believed these events were covered by a work-related exemption to Covid restrictions and that they were essential events but the report said a workplace thank you, leaving drink, birthday celebration or motivational event is obviously neither essential or reason- reasonably necessary. And it also points out that, you know, around the UK, events like that were not taking place. And I think that's the point, that I think people will read this report and think back to their own experiences. Maybe they were a nurse, or maybe they were working in a supermarket, a teacher. They were not having events in staff rooms in their meeting places because they were not allowed to. And this is, this is but Johnson is adamant that, that it was allowed. Um, and then he was not breaking any rules. And they also, the committee, another point is about the the campaign of abuse and intimidation of committee members. Very, very strong language. They say that during the committee hearings, he, he protested against terms like kangaroo court and said, you know, how dare people call you a kangaroo court. Well, afterwards, he was using those terms himself. Um, and the committee took very, very strongly against that as a parliamentary procedure. And that's gone against him quite,
2: quite badly. Because it does seem to have escalated into a row about the committee, doesn't it? Um, and this is, of course, a, a Tory majority committee. But Boris Johnson has absolutely not minced his words, has he? And the committee is not, has been very clear what it thinks about Boris Johnson's criticism of it.
3: Exactly. And Boris Johnson's come come out in a long statement this morning that he believes the events were lawful. They were required by his job. He genuinely thought the guidance was followed completely, as he told the Commons in December 2021. And then he says the conclusion from the committee that he deliberately misled the House is rubbish and a lie and even deranged, he says. And he thinks that this committee um, is he keeps calling it Harriet Harman's committee. Now, she's the Labour MP, a former acting leader of Labour. Who heads up the committee? Um, but this was a, the reality. is this was a cross-party committee with a majority of Conservative MPs, um, but so he's trying to make it a very political act when actually mm. they're saying, "Look, it's it's just a key parliamentary committee and it has nothing to do with politics."
4: The thing is, this whole drama then is consuming both Rishi Sunak's uh, media grid, but also blowing up the Tory party's divisions right out there into the open so bitterly how damaging is this
3: yeah so here now we have a by-election announced for by boris johnson in uxbridge that's in north london and her key ally of his nigel adams has also announced his resignation in selby north yorkshire that's going to happen within the next few weeks there's another one looming in mid bedfordshire too where Nadine doris uh, sits but she hasn't quite resigned yet but she said she will now, Uxbridge is thought to be already lost to Labour, that that's going to go to Labour. But Selby is safer, but that faces a big challenge from Labour as well. And, you know, we're just a year or so out from a general election. Uh, Rishi Sunak's Tories are way behind Labour in the polls. He needs to be seen to be getting Britain back on track now. Mortgages spiralling, people struggling with the cost of living, trains don't work, the NHS under massive strain. So what he doesn't want is to have to cope with all this over the next few weeks. But now Conservative MPs want him to be strong in charge, And there's a risk here of him looking weak and kind of just catching up with events. And once again, his predecessor, Boris Johnson, is setting the agenda.
2: And Emily, reports are uh, that Nadine Doris could delay resigning uh, for days, perhaps even weeks. That's also another big problem, isn't it, for the Prime Minister?
3: Absolutely. So she said that she's waiting. She's put in a lot of um, Subject access requests to various government departments and government bodies to find out why she wasn't handed a peerage. Um, so that's going to take quite a bit of time, I would think, and that could that could push a by-election into late summer, even the autumn. Now we've got the conference season, September, October. The Conservatives are in early October. That's a massive moment for Sunak. It could even be the last conference before the general election, which is expected autumn twenty-four, um, and. If that's dominated by a difficult by election, that that is not good for Rishi Sunak, but it may be what Nadine Doris and Boris Johnson's allies would like to see happen to Rishi Sunak. Um, and I think a, another thing another thing to say is that the Tory membership is a different matter to the Tory MPs. That there's not a lot of support for Boris Johnson among the parliamentary party. It's quite a minority view. But the Tory membership um, could think, well, hang on. Um, Johnson could even become almost a martyr from this report. I mean, remember, Johnson was the man that led the Conservatives to an 80-strong majority at the last election. He united the North, the South of England. And so his allies are presenting this as a kind of small cabal, overruling the will of the people. So Rishi Sunak's not just got his parliamentary party to contend with, but the Conservative membership itself.
4: Okay, so that's the issue for the current Prime Minister. But as to the former Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, uh, despite his anger and rejection, it is the committee that is the arbiter, ultimately, of Partygate in delivering this report. And so I wonder, Emily, whether you think this is the end of Boris Johnson as a real political force? I just,
3: I don't think you can ever, ever, ever rule out Boris Johnson. Still, still. But, okay. <laughs> saying that he is standing down as an MP. I mean, that is happening. There is a by-election. But I don't think you can ever say that he won't return to political life. And I, I think it all depends on what happens to the Conservatives at the next election. Will they be in opposition? Um, there is still a, a huge amount of support in the membership for Boris Johnson. Um, so don't rule him out yet.
2: Emily, thanks so much for joining us on the show. That's Emily Ashton from our UK government team.
4: Now, the current Prime Minister, of course, is trying to focus on the economy, on being, uh, having the UK be a place to do business. And so on to our next story, because the case of We Soda, uh, this business that was planning to list its shares on the London Stock Exchange only two weeks ago, but that has now cancelled the whole thing. Now, you're in an admission here. Even at Bloomberg, we had to turn to our specialist commodities reporters in order for any of us really to understand who on earth uh, we soda and what on earth soda ash actually is. Uh, we had to figure it out. Why is this product actually dug out of the ground in Turkey?
2: Yeah, this is a $7.5 billion company. And I'm kind of extra embarrassed because I used to love chemistry at school, so oh. I should be I should be all across <laughs> the soda ash story, but I wasn't. So I did a lot of googling as well, and it turns out it's used to make loads of stuff: washing powder, in glass manufacturing, rechargeable batteries. It is pretty important, and Soda uh, is the biggest producer of natural soda ash. Uh, In the world.
4: Yeah, and it's backed by also a huge Turkish industrial conglomerate called Syner Group. Um, So, yes, a fortnight ago, the company said that London is a great place to list. Uh, It's uh, a place where there's lots of commodity producers actually already listed on the stock exchange. So investors here would really understand this business. They'd get the proposition the problem is that they wanted a massive discount, we have learned, in order to buy the shares at IPO. And so the firm cancelled it. And it has sent really a shockwave across the London market because this would have been the biggest company to list its shares in London probably for two years. And the company said that it was all about Extreme investor caution. That's why they pulled it.
2: Mm, yeah, because there's been so much bad news, hasn't there, for London as, a, as a, pla- a place to list companies. It used to be the obvious choice for many companies around the world, particularly for natural resource makers, yeah. for, for, for miners. Lots of them listed in London. So this seven and a half billion dollar company was a big boost, but only lasted two weeks before they uh, changed their plans. So p- pretty bad news, really, for London.
4: It was, um, but then I sort of asked that question uh, to the CEO, Alistair Warren, who this morning came into the studio and spoke to me at length. Um, and so I asked him whether, you know, whether it is about the business itself or whether it's about the investors. And he was very interesting on all of those points. Have a listen uh, to what he had to say. I began just by asking him, you know, whether he'd made a mistake in terms of trying to do the listing here in London.
1: No, not at all. I mean, I think that... Uh, you know if you look at the things we did achieve uh, we you know engage with 300 investors all over the world not only in the UK Europe and the US I don't think there's anybody in the business community now that doesn't know who we soda is <laughs> and uh, most importantly people understand what soda Rush is and before we started frankly very few people did so in that sense mission accomplished of course it's disappointing that we couldn't get an IPO done but you know there are some positives that come out of this what went wrong I think that the, the issue wasn't about breadth of engagement, as I've said, 300 institutions. But I think what we're experiencing in Europe, and I mentioned it in the release yesterday, this, this view on extreme sort of valuation caution. Uh, and what does that mean? So typically on an IPO, you have a 15, 20 percent IPO discount to fair value when that uh, IPO discount you know, doubles. Then, as a company, particularly if you don't need the money, you've got a question, does that make sense? And that was really the decision that we took because the extreme investor caution, the fear mm. o- over the this IPO market and the aftermarket performance really drove valuations to such a low level.
4: The FT reports though, that a person familiar with the matter told them that senior executives at companies, had mishandled the discussions with investors and that compounded concerns about management holding zero shares in the group. That's the FT reporting. Want to put that line to you.
1: Yeah, I mean, I actually don't know where that one has come from. It is indeed true that management don't hold shares in the company, but it's also true, consistent with other uh, UK uh, public companies, that you know, our short-term and long-term incentives were largely composed of, of share based remuneration uh, and with a view that all uh, senior executives would accumulate a meaningful shareholding you know, earned by way of bonus and compensation over time. So, but I don't really understand that. It, that the point that was made, because certainly in all the meetings that I did, uh, I think that was that question was asked once um, in one meeting out of you know 60 or 70 meetings. So I I, I think that that's a uh, a line that the FT's chosen to write, but I don't think it's it's actually reflective of the real dialogue. When you talk about the valuation being unrealistically low, what sort of discount are you were were, were you looking at? So, so if you think about this, this is a company that last year generated $741 million of cash. We committed at IPO for 2023 to pay to all shareholders, including the new shareholders, at least a $500 million dividend. So that gives you a strong sort of view on, on dividend yield. And you know, typically you'd expect companies like this to uh, you know, trade at six to 7% dividend yields. When that doubles, right? So effectively, you know, the discount is 50%. Then you've got to question, you know, is that, first of all, is it reflective of the business or is it reflective of market fear? And does it make any sense? Because in many ways, it almost asks as many questions over the business as it answers. And and it was on that basis. And as, as I say, because we didn't need the money, we just thought that sends the wrong message. We're going to withdraw.
4: Okay, so what is the problem then with investors looking at the London market? Why did they, why do you feel that they made, you know, what you're saying, up some, drew some pretty strange conclusions?
1: So, uh, by the way, I don't think this is specific to the London market, right? This is a phenomenon that is similar across all European markets today. And I draw that by comparison to North America, because whilst the North American IPO market isn't straightforward either, it's somewhat more constructive. Uh, And I think it comes down to the willingness of investors to do the real fundamental research and have conviction uh, around that as opposed to following everybody else. Uh, and I think there are, you know, there's such a breadth of different investment styles in North America, you can find a larger group of people that do have that conviction. And in Europe, I think that people have been uh, so damaged by uh, IPOs over the last two years in terms of their aftermarket performance, they're just extremely cautious. So they've taken the view there's lots of value elsewhere. We don't need to do this. If we are going to do it, we're only going to do it at low value. So is that to say that you don't think there's risk appetite from European yeah, investors? Yeah, I think that there is risk appetite, but it's been de-risked to such an extent you know discount over discount over discount you reach the point where there's a mismatch between what the market's prepared to pay and what actually makes sense from a company's perspective uh, and i think that's uh, eventually what what you know where we ended up
4: um it's it's depressing reading um uh, really and it will worry the uk government and you know perhaps- The government, Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, Jeremy Hunt, they have been very keen to stress how market-friendly this administration is, how business-friendly they are. What could they do to prevent this from happening again?
1: So we have no issue at all with the uk and i agree they are market friendly and and supportive uh, but but i don't i don't think this is a government issue to resolve i think this is a market issue to resolve i do think there is you know some issues broadly within financial services in terms of the, sort of the optimization of financial services so very few people want to do fundamental work to understand businesses but i don't think this is one that regulation can solve that's on the margin it's not the core but does that mean then that you're your next step is to look for a listing in the U.S.? So our next step is to focus back on business as usual, right? We've spent, you know, of the last 18 months... With your newfound fame? (laughs) 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 No, we spent most of the last 18 months focusing on an IPO, and there's a lot of growth projects we've got to execute. We've got three, one in Turkey, two in North America, uh, and we've got a lot of commercial projects. Frankly, we discussed with the board yesterday, and that's where we're going to focus. Uh, as and when market conditions improve, we might think of a listing again, and then we'll have to consider where we go. But for now, it's back to business as usual.
4: So we're not going to turn around and find that you're going to for a New York listing, let's say, by the end of this year? No,
1: and the reason for that is we always made it clear this was just one step in a, in a long journey. We didn't need the money. We've got uh, plenty of capital, uh, uh, you know, a very lowly levered balance sheet. We can affund- afford to fund all our growth, and that's what we're going to f- focus on now going forward. What does this effort cost you to to put that preparatory work that you're talking about into an IPO and then not go through with it? Yeah, so so obviously the most of the fees associated with an IPO actually come upon success. Um, because they're they're, they're the banking underwriting fees. Of course, there's legal fees and consultant fees and what have you. But actually, I would look at it like this and say, in going through this process, uh, what has it done in terms of improving the business, improving the way in which we think about uh, the business, how we think about our disclosures? And that's something that we're committed to do, even as a private company. So we don't consider it as a lost investment. We just consider it an improvement uh, in our business uh, that will last for many years to come.
4: What would be your message then to, to institutional investors? I mean I hear the do your research uh, line, but, but what would be your message to institutional investors at this point?
1: Look, I mean I guess my frustration is that if you've got a company which is a global leader, strongly cash backed, strong growth, strong dividend, strong sustain like best in class sustainability credentials, it ticks every box in theory. So if this doesn't work, what does work? And so I think people need to, you know, given that IP, IPOs are fundamental uh, to the sustaining capital markets, you know, bringing new companies and new ideas to the market, they've really got a question whether, you know, their current approach is the right approach. And uh, because otherwise, I think a lot of companies will be turned off and go to private equity or private capital formation as an alternative. Is there, there's nothing that the, the institution, the investors that you spoke to in these engagements, there were no... Issues beyond the fact that you feel they didn't they didn't see the promise that you see in the business. There's there's not a chance that they just found something that that I, in the business that there that led them to not want to give the valuation that you saw for the business. I, I don't think so. Uh, you know there was a broad range of investment styles, growth, yield, emerging markets, developed markets. Of course, they all have their own area of focus. Um, I think that the first challenge for us was to educate people on the industry because it's mm-hmm. not a well understood industry. I think we did that. Then it was to educate them on the you know, operational and financial competitive advantages we had and the sustainability of those. I think there, people understood the advantages, but they struggled with how sustainable they are in the future. And as a result, then they kind of start to layer, when you combine that with the sort of fear factor that I described uh, over market performance, then that then compounds to the valuation outcome that we got but I don't think there were specific issues on the, on the uh, company
4: Just lastly I mean you were you had been hoping to raise $800 million i.e. a valuation of $7.5 billion do yep. you stick to that now you think that perhaps if you come back to market it would be bigger than that stronger than that or well same I, level?
1: I always said there would never be a cheaper time to buy we soda than at, at this IPO and you know we've uh, you know every year we're compounding growth at sort of 12 to 15% uh, you know uh, we're sustaining our margins you know in two years time I'd be very surprised if the valuation isn't significantly ahead of where it is today.
4: So that was Alistair Warren, the CEO of We Soda, uh, speaking to us here on Bloomberg Radio. I thought it was very fascinating. He really pushed back hard against the idea that the business is problematic in any way to invest. He was saying that investors are too cautious. They don't want to take the risk. Uh, You know, they are clearly thinking about whether they do another IPO, not for now, but maybe at some point. But they will look to the US. And so this issue of the City of London, the strength of the City of London to attract businesses is really really still there for for the government. Although, of course, Alistair Warren said he didn't blame Rishi Sunak's government. He didn't say that it was anything really that the government could do anything about.
2: Yeah, that was interesting in itself, wasn't it? I, I think the key thing which he pointed to and which a number of companies have pointed to, which is quite difficult for the government to fix, is that valuations are simply higher in New York. And if you're listing your company, you want it to have a $8 billion valuation and not a $6 billion valuation. I mean, who, who wouldn't? And and that is a difficult problem for, for London to get around.
4: Well, it's also the fact, though, that some businesses have, have um, launched their shares and then right at the start of trading, the valuation has come tumbling down very quickly. Mm. And so that has also in the past um, added to the kind of concerns around the London market. But I think it's very, very interesting and something the government is really focused on. Yeah,
2: of course, Deliveroo was the uh, classic example of, yeah. a, of, a, of a tech IPO, the sort of company which you can imagine getting a good valuation in New York, that listed mm-hmm. in London and the shares really tanked over the uh, the months uh, following the listing now look we've had this with ARM as well, of course, which is a massive uh, British tech giant. The chip yeah. designer ARM, you know, is a world leader. It's a really important tech company, and they simply said they are going to New York.
4: Yep, yeah, absolutely. Well, look, that's it for our program for today. But do join us tomorrow. We've got a real star lineup for you. Uh, the Deputy Prime Minister Oliver Dowden, Conservative MP, will be joining us. He'll be speaking to Bloomberg's UK correspondent Lizzie Burden So tune in, download the podcast, or listen to it live, of course, tomorrow.
2: Yeah, that's going to be a good one. and If you like the program, you can. And subscribe to us and give us five stars so other people can find us on Apple Podcasts Spotify or wherever you listen
4: This episode was produced by James Walcock Our audio engineer was Marufal Hussain I'm Caroline Hetker
2: I'm Ewan Potts We'll be back with more tomorrow This is Bloomberg Bloomberg UK Politics Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London